Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. One of the things I'm going to talk about today is wise effort. And a more appropriate way to talk about this term wise effort, maybe we'll just jump right into it, <laughs> is uh, the word sama, that means wise, actually means something more like complete, or you could even say harmonious or balanced. So our effort around some of these things that we're talking about it's not that we ever arrive at a completely balanced place, but that we're always seeking balance. And the way I've heard this described, it's like when NASA shoots a rocket to the moon, from what I've heard, I'm no rocket scientist, obviously, <laughs> that it's off course of its trajectory, like something like 98% of the time. So it's making these micro adjustments up and down and left and right and thrusters this way and thrusters that way. And it's making a series of thousands and thousands and thousands of micro adjustments so that it can get right where it needs to be on the exact spot that it's going to land on the moon. And I find that balancing in our practice, in our lives, is um, much more about the journey rather than the destination, right? <laughs> so today I am going to talk about the sixth factor of the Buddha's Eightfold Path, wise effort. It said that he talked about this path factor more than any other factor of the Eightfold Path, so it's very important and probably very challenging. One of the fundamental principles behind the Buddha's teaching is the law of karma. And culturally, I think, for a lot of us that are maybe new to the Buddha's teaching, our understanding of karma is this kind of like metaphysical distribution of merit, which means something like if you do good things, you'll get good things. Good things will happen to you. And if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. And it couldn't be further from what the Buddha taught, actually. Because what the Buddha teaches pretty front and center, like it's like the first noble truth, is that good things and bad things are going to happen to you regardless of what you do. It's kind of what the Buddha says in the first noble truth. He said, you're going to experience pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, status and disgrace. No matter what you do to try to control it, it's going to happen. Your body's going to grow old no matter what you do. You're going to become sick at moments in your life no matter what you do. You're going to die. You're going to be separated from things that you love no matter what you do. But karma is not doing good things and getting good things to happen, but it's how we show up amidst the good and the bad things that happen. 
that our level of peace is dependent on how we respond to the good and bad things that happen in our life. So it's in this ability to be with experience as it is that we find peace. And that that's not easy. We have to do that. We have to try that. And I always have this like adolescent part of my brain that's always like, but I don't want to. I just want the good things. So the quality of of peacefulness that we're developing in the Buddhist path is this ability to be with the, the good and the bad as it comes and goes. And karma is, do we react? Do we, when the good things are happening, do we cling on to them do we try to get more do we become possessive do we become greedy do we get caught in a cycle of addiction around the pleasurable things in our lives constantly chasing the next thing the next one more once I get once I have or do we learn to respond differently in these moments when the good things are here? Do we learn how to have a non-attached appreciation? An ability to let go of clinging on to these moments and really be able to enjoy them in all of their impermanence. Being present with what's pleasant. Right? You ever have a moment where something's going really well, but if only it was just a little bit better. You know, it's like sitting on the beach in just the perfect weather and the perfect tide, and they had that nice sand that's real grainy, doesn't have the seashells, and you're just... But then there's this cloud that just kind of comes right in front of the sun and you get a little too cold. And practicing non-attached appreciation is kind of this practice of, okay, right now it's like this. May I be at ease with this moment, how it is, however it is. Or do we react in those moments? You know, and this is what karma is, is it's basically do we get caught in that need to fix or to control or to manage or to try to push away the painful things that we experience too? Or do we learn to soften the heart and the mind and open with compassion? Open with the wisdom to know that the pleasant experiences are impermanent. In a simple way, what we're talking about is do we learn to try to actually accept the moment for what it is, however it is? So effort in the Buddhist practice is very important because it's, the practice itself is all about action. And not just meditation practice, but the ways that we live our lives, how we show up. You know, do we show up in our lives with generosity at the heart of our 
experience? Do we show up in our lives with compassion, with gratitude at the heart of our experience? And it's not about getting it right. It's about persevering despite the odds. One of my favorite heart practice phrases was taught to me by a teacher named George Haas. And he says, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. Is this perseverance to continue to do the things that we know bring us happiness despite not being happy some of the time. So today I want to talk about effort a little bit more in this kind of general way, and then I'm going to talk about it as it applies to meditation. You know, every time I go to the car wash, probably once every six months, (laughs) I tell myself, this is legitimate, that I'm going to go to the car wash every other week. My car is clean. It only took me 40 minutes. I feel so good when I get in my car that next time. Like, I'm surprised. I forgot that I had cleaned it, and it's just like, I'm going to do this every other week. And I go to this car wash up the street here, and they sell a monthly membership, which I don't purchase because I know that I won't follow through with my plan (laughs) to wash my car every other week. And in this example of the car wash and arguably more important areas of my life as well, I often find that when I commit to do something, that when it comes time to do it, when the opportunity arises, I don't want to do it. And then, of course, if I do it, I'm usually glad that I did. Is this relatable at all? This moment of not wanting to do something that I actually really want to do is really interesting to me. (laughs) It doesn't make any logical sense, and it's probably the number one thing that I see as a therapist, is that people come in knowing what they want to do, knowing the changes they want to make, can even set goals around them, have even had moments of success with them at times in their life sometimes. But when it comes to doing it, they don't want to do it. So first thing to clear up here is that this is completely normal. We all struggle with this. And the reason why I feel like that's important to say is that there's an endless barrage of motivational speakers out there on TikTok that will tell you that there are these people that are doers and these people that are like wishers. And if you wake up at three in the morning and you work out, you meditate, and you study the projections of the stock market, and then you have your coffee, you still spend an hour with your family, you kiss your partner goodbye, you go off to the office for a 12-hour work day, You come home satisfied and you do it all over again tomorrow. Oftentimes when I'm struggling to find the motivation to make an effort to do the things that I know I want to do in my life, I get this feeling that 
I'm the only one, that I'm not capable, and this kind of shame wizard starts to come into my brain and tell me I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not, I'm too lazy, I'm not capable. So I want to normalize that, but I then I want to kind of ask the question, why do we not do what we actually really want to do? And I found this is just my own experience here that I want to share with you. I found that there are a few things that I've noticed about this. One is, is that I tend to be good at doing something, making a change in my life for a short period of time. I don't know if you've noticed this about yourself. But I'm someone that tends to be motivated from some level of desperation, some level of pain. And pain is a good motivator. You know, it only takes a few days in a row of me not meditating, not having a good morning routine, going to bed too late, not eating the best, that I start to feel that pain. And I think one of the things that happens when we're not doing the things that we actually want to do is we lose urgency. In Buddhism, there's this word that the Buddha calls samvega, which means spiritual urgency. And I want to point out that the same experience of kind of complacency, if we're going to call it that, I think it's actually a lot deeper than that, but... This experience of complacency is something that the Buddha himself struggled with. And it is a core part of his story. He grew up in all this privilege and, you know, and he found himself still suffering, basically. And one day he went into the village, the nearby town, and he saw an aging person, a sick person, a dead corpse lying in the ditch, and some spiritual mendicant, a spiritual practitioner sitting there amidst all of this that had renounced this kind of worldly way of living and had tried to embark on a path of spiritual exploration. And the Buddha had this spark that he called spiritual urgency which is this kind of sense of shock that comes about when life confronts us at a level in which we're acutely aware that something needs to change, that how we're showing up needs to change. I think religions try to do a lot of things to help keep this urgency going, don't they? I mean, we've created whole realms of experience. Things to be afraid of if you don't keep the urgency going. Because, I think, understandably, fear is a good motivator, too. But can we motivate ourselves from something other than shame and fear and keep urgency? My answer, I do have an answer. It's yes, but it's harder. It's harder. 
a couple things that I've found that help me to keep urgency is to reflect on the preciousness and precariousness of life. You know, I have these moments, I have a daughter, and I have these moments where I have an intrusive thought that my daughter is going to die. And if you brought this to any ordinary therapist, they might say, oh, that's an intrusive thought. We've got to kind of work on checking that and like trying to not follow that rabbit hole. And, but if you go to a Buddhist and you say, I have this intrusive thought that my daughter is going to die, they would say, uh, reflect on that because it's true. And past the fear that exists in this reflection around death is the reality that life is very precious. That this moment right now is very precious. This is a gift. And not in the sense of I need to hurry up and check everything off my bucket list kind of urgency. But the urgency to show up for, in this example, in my relationship with my daughter how I want to show up in this moment comes to the forefront of my mind. And then all of those little things that kind of get in our way a lot of the time, they don't seem to matter as much in those moments. Another thing that I've found that helps motivate me other than just fear and shame is uh, friendship, people that are walking a similar path. I tell this story every time I talk about effort, and I apologize to those that have heard it three or four times. But I went to uh, Myanmar, used to be called Burma, uh, a few years ago, and I sat a meditation retreat for a month it's a silent meditation retreat, and it's a very disciplined meditation retreat. I would, I would say it's probably one of the most disciplined forms of meditation retreat that exist. You wake up at 3 in the morning, and you go to bed at 9 at night, and you do about 16 hours of formal meditation all day. That means for 16 hours of your day, you're actively in meditation practice. And I knew this going into it, and I flew 26 hours to Thailand, woke up early the next morning, flew the last leg to Myanmar, took a car three hours out into rural Myanmar. You would have thought that I lost my mind wanting to go, going to any lengths to get this type of misery. And I get there, and they sit me down and they play this tape. That's from this meditation master named Saitao Upandita, and it's him talking from like 1982 on this tape. And he tells me from 1982 how I'm going to meditate on the retreat. And they push pause and they say, any questions? And I said, no, I think I got it. And they said, okay, we'll see you in a month. And so I wake up the next morning at 3 a.m. and I do the 16 hours of meditation practice and we get to the last sit. So I guess I did 15 hours. <laughs> And I was just beat. I was tired. And so I look around and everyone's sitting down to meditate and I slide out the side door and I start walking back to my little hut. And all of a sudden I hear 
someone from the side say, excuse me. And I had that feeling like a teenager when you're sneaking out of the house. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I look and there's this beautiful monk, strong monk in an orange robe. And he said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going back to my hut to go to sleep. And he said, his English wasn't that good, but I love the directness of the way that I heard it through his voice. He said, oh no, it's meditation time. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, yeah, I know it's meditation time, but I'm really tired. I had a really long day and I just want to go back to my hut to go to sleep. And he looked at me with all the sincerity and genuineness in his eyes, looked me right in the eyes with his hands in Anjali, the prayer hands, and he said, please try, please try. And there's this type of urgency that comes from an accountability of a friend that's not the same as when a friend is judging or shaming, but a type of, I know you can do it. And I turned around (laughs) and I walked back to the meditation center and I just started laughing uncontrollably. Like, what a unique, precious experience in life to have someone call you on your shit in the most loving way possible. (laughs) That basically said, I know you're tired, but that's just your mind that's tired. And you can sit with that mind that's tired. And of course, there's the discernment that was brought up earlier. There's a time and place to rest and a time and place where that's the compassionate thing to do. But you know what? I went and sat for another hour and I didn't fall apart and I didn't have a breakdown. So one of the things that happens is I think we lose urgency. The other thing that I think happens is that the payout, if you will, I know we don't like to talk a lot about the goals in Buddhism, but the goal, the reward, I should say at least, is not instant and is sometimes intangible. Right? Like, when a friend calls me to move and they want my help. No one wants to be the friend you call on when your friend's moving. And we all hate to be the friend that has to call on our friends to help us move. And it's one of those things. I know if I do it, I'll be glad that I did it. But I have a list of at least 50 other things that I could be doing rather than helping my friend move. And the Buddha calls that the benefit of of a spiritual life brings about what he calls an unworldly type of pleasure. A pleasure that's not the same that we get from a bowl of ice cream. It's not the pleasure that we get that's the same of getting the things that we want, getting the experiences we want, having things go the way that we want. He calls it the joy of letting go 
of letting go sometimes of our preferences. And I experience this a lot of the times when I do service work or when I am at an event or an experience that is not quite how I wanted it to be. Maybe my friend that said they were going to come wasn't there. Or, you know, and I try to let go of my preferences around the experience. And the other thing is that the payout is often not instant. You know, when it comes to meditation practice, meditation is a practice of cultivation. It's a training. And we sit down. We say, okay, I'm going to meditate for 30 minutes. That's longer than I've meditated my entire life. And you sit down for 30 minutes and the mind that you had at the beginning of the meditation seems to be the same mind that you have at the end of the meditation. And you're like, it didn't work. And I have found that most things in life that are worth a damn are the things that take perseverance and patience. They're the things that I develop, not the things that I get. Think about any skill that you have. You've worked hard for it, to master it. Whether you're good at public speaking, or you're good at graphic design, or good at the guitar, or whatever it may be. And part of the reason why it's rewarding is not just because you can produce a good product, but because you have a mastery of the skill, because it's something you've developed over time. So sometimes I don't do things that I know I want to do because they're not instantly gratifying and because the reward I get from them is not tangible. Last couple things I'll just say real quick is sometimes I have too high of expectations for myself. So I don't start something because the thing needs to be perfect. And the other thing that tends to happen is I tend to think that I haven't done it for so long that I'm not capable and that it's a personal failing. I just can't. And once I get to that place of kind of resignation around it, it's a very dangerous place for me. I'm just not a meditator. It doesn't work. I tried it. Bullshit. Do you think meditation is something you think everyone in this room loves to meditate and that's why they're here? Because they're good at it? No, we're the people that suck at it. So bad that we need it. And so now we have to do it. So welcome. All right, effort that's applied in meditation. I just want to take these last 10 minutes to talk about how efforts brought into meditation practice. When the Buddha talks about it as a path factor, he's really talking about it as a way of bringing effort into our development of present awareness, right? And so we can start by talking about how it's in the nature of the mind to not be present. You know, even through neuroscience studies, the default mode network of your brain, which is the brain that's always on, tends to be a constant planning, a constant doing. They call it a task-positive mode. Do you ever notice that your mind always wants, wants to do, 
wants to plan, wants to fix, wants to figure out, wants to compare, wants to judge. It just wants. And so it's not really in the nature of the mind to want to not do, to want to be. And making the effort to not do is a weird thing to talk about. Because when you're meditating, it's like, okay, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to do it. Meditation's not like that. It's not like something that you do. It's something that you check in with. It's like a science experiment. It's like a scientist. The experiment's already set up. You've got a mind. You've got emotions. You've got physical sensations in your body. As a scientist, the effort that you're making is just the effort to observe what's happening. Sayadaw Utejaniya says, right effort in meditation means simply to keep reminding yourself to be aware. Right effort is persistent effort. It's not energy used to focus really hard on something, which is striving. It is effort which is simply directed at remaining aware. It's not difficult to be aware or to be mindful, but it's difficult to maintain it continuously. For this, you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. So the way the Buddha describes this in one of the suttas is, he's talking about something other than wise effort, but it's related, is it's like a person balancing a pot of hot oil on their head. Now your commitment to not spill the oil needs to be strong. You need to be mindful. You need to watch your movement. You need to be very present and aware and in balance. But it's not this strong willed effort. It's an effort that's gently balanced. An effort to keep trying to be aware. So as we're aware, what we develop in meditation is we start to develop more discernment or more familiarity with your mind. You know, I have over the course of my life, I think, sat six or seven months of silent meditation retreat. And on top of that, I've sat countless hours in meditation practice. And the reason I say that is because I am very familiar with all of the tricks of my mind. I'm very, very familiar with all of its little stories it tells and the way that lethargy feels in my mind and the way that doubt is experienced in my mind. But despite how familiar I am, I still get lost in the lethargy, in the doubt, in the fear, in all of the stories of my mind. But over time, I find that I'm a little bit more discerning. I'm able to catch it a little bit quicker, see it a little bit clearer, respond a little bit more skillfully when my mind's caught up in fear or shame or doubt or tiredness or restlessness. And the Buddha says that during our meditation practice, yeah, the effort we're making is just to be aware, 
but that we also want to be discerning. We want to be discerning about what type of mind states are present. He calls them visiting tendencies, these kind of visitors of craving, of aversion, of restlessness, of lethargy, of doubt, fear, shame, all the different flavors of our mind. And he says that we want to try to make an effort, an effort to try to prevent unskillful habits of mind from taking root. We want to try to abandon the unskillful habits of mind that are present. We want to try to cultivate skillful habits of mind and to maintain the ones that are present. Now, what's a skillful habit of mind? The mind state of generosity, the mind state of compassion, the mind state of gratitude, the mind state of equanimity, the mind state of renunciation, of letting go. You know, if you listen to Buddhist teachers, Thich Nhat Hanh, Dalai Lama, you know, people like this talk about the Buddhist teaching is they inevitably talk about things like compassion. Sure, they talk about being present, they talk about mindfulness, but ultimately they talk about compassion and love, peacefulness. Ajahn Sumedho, Buddhist meditation teacher, says that the, in Buddhism, the practice is not to follow your heart, but to train your heart. So you don't come about compassion and gratitude and generosity passively. You've got to actively bring those qualities into the moment. And the deeper idea here behind uh, maybe some of the Mahayana Buddhist tradition is that those qualities already exist. They're your nature, but they're obscured by things like your fear and shame and the narrative, the story your mind's telling you, the lethargy, the agitation that you're experiencing. And one way that I like to talk about this is, have you ever done something that just was out of character? You ever acted out of anger and regretted it? You ever get jealous about a friend that you actually love and have no reason to be jealous around? Yeah, it's these tendencies of our mind, these emotional qualities that kind of hijack our brain that we're trying to notice, but then in the four great efforts, I wrote them on the board, we're trying to prevent, we're trying to abandon, we're trying to cultivate skillful qualities and maintain them. So due to time, I'm not going to talk about all of these in depth, but I will say that I'll go through them real quickly. Preventing unskillful mind states. Early in my recovery practice, recovery from drug and alcohol addiction, one of the cliche phrases I actually think is very wise that was told to me early on is that if you don't want to have cravings to get high, you shouldn't go around people that are getting high. And they would say, if you don't want to get your hair cut, don't go to the barber shop, right? Because you're going to be tempted. 
And uh, while I'm a person that loves my autonomy and would hate to think that I'm a, a slave to my craving mine, that I'm someone that should be more powerful than my craving mine, uh, my experience has been that I now have a lot more humility towards these mind states than I did before. I've found that if you put me in a situation that's heightened, a triggered situation that's heightened, and you keep me there long enough, that mind state towards greed, hatred, or delusion is going to arise, and it's going to be really hard for me not to act on it. Another example I like to think about this is like going home for the holidays. Now, I have decided everyone's different. Everyone has different families. I've decided I want to have a relationship with my family. I love my family, warts and all. But there are some things about being around my family that are very hard to be around. And I find myself falling into the same patterns with my family that I've had since I was a kid. Do you ever notice that? <laughs> So how about some respect and some humility for those patterns? They're far more powerful than I am. So I, when I go home for the holidays, I try to, I, I cope ahead. I try to drive myself. I try to plan maybe to go to a Sangha, Buddhist community when I'm there, or a recovery meeting when I'm there, or hang out with some friends, or kind of moderate my time. So we do have to do things in our life that has this wisdom, the environment that you put yourself in, it can contribute to the type of mind states you experience. And that doesn't mean that you should walk around trying to carpet the world to make sure you never bump into your triggers, but at least know what they are and some skillful ways of engaging with them beforehand, right? So this is what I like to think about when I think about preventing unskillful mind states that have yet to arise. The second is to abandon unskillful mind states that have already arisen. And this is really where the role of mindfulness comes in. This is, I'm here. Number one failed. I didn't prevent it. It's here. Not my fault. Just happened. I fell into a feeling of anger. I fell into a feeling of craving or whatever it may be. And we want to start to investigate the mind state. And the first step is just to be aware that it's here. Sounds simple, but it's not easy. Joseph Goldstein offers as a tool for number two on the board, he offers a, a switch in our language. Instead of saying, I am angry, or I'm scared, or I'm sad, or I'm whatever, he offers to try to practice mindfulness in this way where we can say, oh, there is anger. There it is. There is craving right there in my mind in this moment. So it's kind of like spotting it, like there it is. Because oftentimes I get so lost in the story of my emotion that I lose mindfulness of it. Right? It's, it's very rare that I have the awareness, unfortunately, to say, oh, 
there's stress in my mind. Oh, there's obsession in my mind. There's doubt or there's fear. Usually I'm busy talking to myself about what I'm afraid of or what I'm stressed about. So this simple awareness of being able to notice when the mind state's present is very powerful. It's powerful because when we can spot it, the mind state loses its power. The story becomes less compelling and has less of a grip. Right? It's kind of like when I was a kid and I thought that there was a monster in my closet, but then when I went and looked and I saw that there wasn't, I felt better. You know, it's like looking right at what's going on in your mind is like not reacting to the monster that's in your closet, but actually going right up to it and saying, oh, there's anger. Hi, anger. Nice to meet you. Good to see you. Thanks for sharing. Oh, you hate all these people? Cool. I can tell you're really pissed off right now. Well, how about we don't say that thing right now? We'll wait for 30 minutes and we'll maybe go on a walk. That sounds like a good way to abandon an unskillful mind state. Now, here's the thing about abandoning an unskillful mind state. It's not going to go away when you want it to. That's the hardest thing. This is my hack for number two. Part of acceptance is acceptance doesn't mean it goes away. Acceptance means that you say, oh, this is here. And if you have an idea that it's here, it's good because you get less caught up in it. But it's going to be here as long as it's going to be here until it goes away. Number three is cultivating skillful qualities that have not yet arisen. With mindfulness, we try to imagine what would a compassionate response be in this moment? What would a kind response be in this moment? Now, this is really hard when the mind is full of self-righteous indignation and it's caught up in getting its way. It's just what the mind does. You know, I've never liked people telling me what to do. And then sometimes my Dharma practice can feel like a chore. It's like, oh, Andrew, you're supposed to do the compassionate thing. It's like my mind's just like, I don't want to do the compassionate thing. (laughs) You know, but I... Try to incline my mind in that direction. Just try to steer the ship. And that's how I experience it. I talked about that balancing act. I find that it's two steps forward, one step backward. Sometimes one step forward, two steps backwards. When I'm trying to practice doing the compassionate thing or having the compassionate mind state or the kind thing or the, the thing, the peaceful thing. Lastly, we maintain the skillful qualities that have already arisen. You know, there is some continuity to our practice. Whatever you practice, you get better at. This is kind of how it works. So if you practice meeting yourself with loving kindness, may I be at ease, may I be at peace, may I be kind and gentle with myself. If you practice meeting yourself with Forgiveness. I understand that I have caused myself harm and I offer me forgiveness for that thing that I did. I care for you. I'm here for you. I love you. Keep going. If you offer yourself compassion, the more you practice that, the better you get. And then it starts to show up for you spontaneously at times. Right? I mean, some some of y'all, hopefully in this room, you've noticed, you ever like think that you're going to have a certain reaction and then it's the opposite?
And I remember talking to a contractor one time that was not doing their job and was lying and was late and I was pissed off and they showed up and the place that they were working on was flooding because they didn't do their job correctly and I was like seeing red I was so pissed and my mind said all these things that were true mind you I have to come over and be at this place on a Saturday because he didn't do his job and now I have to clean out all of this water and I have to spend my whole day all because of his negligence all true but not helpful actually does it make the water go away no does it make the situation change no so I stewed in it for a little bit and I got all the way over here and the contractor showed up and when he showed up I looked at him and I said I am very upset right now and he looked at me and he said I'm sorry that I didn't do this correctly and he didn't have to say that and could have worked out differently but it was amazing to me that I didn't need to give him a peace of mind I just needed to tell him how I felt I'm very upset right now and it de-escalated things and it kind of opened up and that kind of happened spontaneously I wasn't thinking about it I wasn't trying to do the compassionate thing but I find these days that there are those special moments where the kind thing the compassionate thing actually just shows up because it's been practiced it's been cultivated so these are some of my reflections on wise effort there's a lot here uh, I'd love to open it up to hear from y'all what has your experience been around doing those things that you know you want to do but not doing it what do you find that usually happens what, what goes on in your own heart and mind uh, anything also that you want to say about these kind of four efforts questions comments we got a few minutes here thanks for listening